0: I want to pause just a minute, recognize someone, uh, we, we're so blessed at First Baptist Church with the staff that we have, uh, the folks who serve you and the Lord so faithfully here at First Baptist Church. Christy Couch celebrated her ninth year with us this week as our, yeah. as our church financial manager and promotion specialist, and we appreciate her hard work and her service so very much. If you have your Bible, find with me again uh, the book of 1 Peter, this time chapter 4, as we can pick up where we left off last week, 1 Peter chapter 4, and just hold your place there for just a moment. This past August, uh, an American Airlines pilot uh, speaking to passengers on the plane, um, uh, his notes to his passengers, his speech to his passengers went viral. So you may have already heard about it. Uh, But to give you some insight into the reason for it, why he said what he said, um, what the airlines refer to as unruly passengers, the instances of unruly passengers on our airlines have significantly increased. Uh, Prior to 2020, there were only about 1,000 instances of unruly passengers a year. In 2020, there were 2,500 instances, and in 2021, 6,000 instances of unruly passengers on our airline. So there's a problem there, and this, this pilot decided he would tackle that problem. So he, before they took off and uh, uh, started their flight together, he came over to the intercom to tell them how they should treat one another on this journey together. The pilot said, Now, remember, the flight attendants are here for your safety. After that, they're here to make your flight more enjoyable. They're going to take care of you guys, but but you will listen to what they have to say because they represent my will in the cabin, and my will is what matters. And then he went on to say, be nice to each other. Be respectful to each other. He said, I shouldn't have to say that, but I do have to say it every single flight because people don't. People, he said, are selfish and rude, and we won't have it. Uh, he went on to remind them to store their bags properly, to avoid leaning or falling asleep on other people, to use headphones instead of playing their audio out loud on speakers. Don't you wish you had him for your next pilot? I shouldn't have to say it, but I have to say it. You like that? I shouldn't have to, but I have to. Because sometimes people forget that ordinary behavior is usually the best behavior. In fact, oftentimes, ordinary behavior can be simply extraordinary in the way it impacts people around you, and the way, in this case, it impacts your journey together. A group of people stuffed into a tube flying through the air need just ordinary, respectful behavior for one another And when they land, they would all probably agree we had an extraordinary flight just because everybody behaved as they were supposed to behave. In the next portion of Peter's letter, that's what he's going to point toward. Uh, You'll recall last week where we left off, he had invoked the image of the end of time, that that Christ was going to return soon. Uh, As most people in the first century believed and as every Christian is taught to believe in their lifetime Christ will end, Christ will return, and God will close the door on history. That's how we are to live. So he invokes that image last week, and what we'll pick up this week in chapter 4 and verse 7, he's going to say, now, with that in mind, uh, don't do anything different. Instead, you should live the ordinary Christian life, because the ordinary Christian life is extraordinary at all times, not just in the end times, But at all times, living the ordinary Christian life is what we are called to do. Ordinary Christian faith makes an extraordinary impact when we actually live for Christ and do what God is telling us to do. So pick up there with me, 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to start reading at verse 7. Peter says, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him... Be the glory and the power forever and ever. Uh, Peter has invoked the end time as the backdrop for his teaching. His teaching that ordinary Christians make an extraordinary impact. And everything he's going to say applies to those last days. And as we have talked about living in a hostile world, uh, we can see ourselves moving faster and faster. Uh, toward that conclusion of history, whenever God calls it to a conclusion. But the important thing also to remember is the ordinary practices of the Christian life are not just about the end times, they're about how we live all the time. And the ones that Peter applies here, uh, we should be applying to our lives all the time, and he's going to tell us why. Uh, So keep that in mind, the ordinary Christian life makes an extraordinary impact all the time, but in particular, as we are living in a hostile world and moving toward the close of history. We don't know when Christ will come back. But we do know that every minute we are here is a minute closer to his return and to the close of history. So let's go back to the passage for just a minute, and I just want to very simply apply for us today four practices of an ordinary Christian life that make an extraordinary impact, not just in the end times, but all the time. And as we do this, ask yourself if you are applying these ordinary practices. Now, don't misunderstand. Peter doesn't doesn't bring up every single practice of the Christian life, but he brings up four that are particularly pertinent to the people that he's talking to, and I believe to us today as well. So four practices of the Christian life, ordinary practices, that make an extraordinary impact when we simply apply them and do what God is calling us to do. The first one is the practice of unwavering prayer unwavering prayer the end of all things Peter says is near therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer Uh, be alert and sober-minded for prayer he says because the the end is drawing near now in, in that context he's thinking of Christians just like those in the culture that see the end of time approaching and respond to that emotionally like many of us, people in the first century and Christians in the first century, thinking that history was drawing near, that, that things would get worse in our culture and in our world, might respond emotionally, they might respond out of fear, they might respond out of panic. They might respond out of concern of what, what should I do next? What should I change?" Peter says, "Instead, when you pray, don't pray out of worry, don't pray out of panic, don't pray out of fear. When you pray, first of all, be alert. Pay attention to what's happening in the culture. Uh, pay attention to what's going on around us. Pay attention to what's happening in the Middle East and in America and other places. And, 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 and pay attention to the signs that Christ might be coming soon. But also just pay attention to what's going on around you and in the church. Therefore, in your alertness, when you pray, be sober-minded for prayer. The term translated sober-minded Uh, means to be reasonable and unemotional. Very simply put, when you look on the world around you and look at the struggles of your own life, don't panic, don't worry, don't be afraid, and don't go to the Lord and let fear and worry dominate your prayer. Your prayer, the the term means, should be a reasonable prayer. You should pray reasonably and trusting God in your prayer because reasonable prayer shows your trust for God. Peter's readers would know that. We have to be reminded of it. That when you go to the Lord in prayer, without worry, without fear, without letting emotion take hold, you are trusting the God who's in charge of history and in charge of your life. You are acknowledging with God in prayer that he knows what he's doing and you are trusting him for whatever you're going through and whatever's happening in the world. The practice of unwavering prayer says when I go to the Lord in prayer, I don't approach God with worry and emotion. I'm not, I'm not panicked over my life or over world events. I know my God is in charge, and I will come unwavering in faith because of who He is. Second Peter says, apply the practice of unconditional love. The practice of unconditional love. Above all, he says, maintain constant love, for one another. Here he's probably remembering Jesus own words when Jesus said, "Love one another, by this all men will know you are my disciples that you have love for one another." Because he's talking about love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Bible does teach we are to love our neighbors, that is those outside the body of Christ. But particularly in this passage, Peter is talking about how we love one another in the world the way that it is right now, and how we apply that ordinary Christian love and how it produces an extraordinary impact. Uh, the, word, the love that he's talking about is unconditional love. You, you might recognize the Greek word this English word comes from as agape. Uh, we, that's ordinary Christian love, but it's unconditional love. It would have been extraordinary love in his day and time, the Romans didn't even know how to use the word until the Christians adopted it, the word agape, for love. The Romans didn't believe in unconditional love. All love had to be merited. Anything I do for you, you had to earn. But here the Christians come along, and they say, we want to reflect the love of God in Jesus Christ. We need a word for that, and what do you know? God had already given them a word that was almost in no use in the Roman Empire, agape, unconditional love. It's not an emotion at all, it's an action, it's an attitude, it's a decision you make to love one another, your siblings in Christ, just as Christ has loved you. And Peter says to be constant in that kind of love toward one another. Uh, The idea is to be earnest in it, to be fervent in it, to be intentional to love one another that way. And he says there's a reason for that. In what is probably one of the most quoted passages in the Bible, but usually taken right out of context, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. What does he mean by that, and how does it apply here? Siblings in Christ, if you know Jesus and you're with people who know Jesus, the Bible doesn't tell you that you have to love people who are likable. Instead, the Bible says, and as Peter's reflecting here, you and I make a decision, a conscious decision, to have an attitude and an action of love toward one another because sometimes we might hurt each other. Sometimes, believe it or not, even Christians can sin against each other and can be petty toward one another. And when that happens... Often, if we're acting out of emotion or panic or worry, uh, we might turn our backs on each other. We might even split churches. We might break up relationships. So Peter says, in advance, make the decision that you are going to be fervent and earnest in your unconditional love for one another so if you should hurt each other, that love covers over that. Another way we would put it is you take the high ground. You don't diminish yourself or break up relationships in the body of Christ because you hurt one another. Because if you need each other, you need each other now. In in the ordinary Christian life, we need each other. At the end of time, we really need each other. When we're going through stress and heartache, when inflation is still rising, we really need each other. When we're worried about what's going on in the Middle East, when we're watching the news, we really need each other. That's not the time to let petty differences get the best of you. That's the time to say, you know what? I choose to love you in Christ. If Jesus loved you enough to die for you, I can love you. Practice unconditional love, Peter says, because that love usurps all kinds of issues, a multitude of issues you might have with your siblings in Christ. Just practice that kind of love. Then he gives an application, uh, an actual instance in which he wants them to be sure they apply. Uh, When you are practicing hospitality, he says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Now, we need a little context here. In the ancient world, when people traveled, especially Christians by this time, uh, they really couldn't look for places to stay in public places, like what we would call hotels, the Bible calls inns, uh, and, and sometimes their family would not take them in because they become Christians. When and the most common housing you had when you traveled was to stay with families spread out throughout the empire. But now Christians are part of the family of God. So when they would travel, they would seek out other Christians to stay with for a while while they were on the way. This was their practice of hospitality. The Bible speaks of it frequently. Uh, So, other Christians, Christians knew where other Christians lived in whatever town they were in, and they would seek them out, and as a practice of hospitality, they would stay with them. Now, if if you think about uh, the ancient world, their houses were not like our houses. They didn't have a living room with several bedrooms and a kitchen at the back. Uh, Typically, right inside the front door was the main common room where everybody did everything. And they might have a little cooking area over to the side. Maybe they had a wall there. They might have a room where uh, the uh, uh, patriarch and matriarch of the family slept. Everybody else, they crashed on the floor. So you've invited Christians in for hospitality, and and you don't have a lot of money. The Christians didn't have a lot of money. People in the ancient world, there was no middle class. You were either pretty much living in poverty or you were extremely wealthy. And most Christians were in the class of those who didn't have much. So here this guy comes along and he's traveling and you invite him in by by the the principle of hospitality. He stays one night, he stays two nights, he stays three nights, he stays four nights. He's eating your bread, he's drinking your water, you're, you're cooking extra stuff for him. Night five comes along, morning six comes in, there he is laying in the floor.
1: And how easy
0: it is for you and your spouse to come over to the side and say, I cannot believe. He is still here. That's what Peter's talking about. Apply unconditional love in your hospitality, he tells those believers, without complaining that he's still here. And we could spread out that dictate and remind us that we don't complain about each other. Part of unconditional love when you're loving someone in action, you're not pulling over to the side, you're not talking about them at home, loving someone unconditionally, you're not complaining about them, you're seeking to help them. Now, does this mean, did Peter mean, there's no boundaries here? If, if this traveler, whom you didn't meet till six days ago, wants to live in your house as long as he wants to, he gets to do that. The reality is, even the young believers saw a problem with that. The young church in the first century, they drew up what we would call policies. So no, this dude can't stay forever. There was a a line where he had to, at some point, make other arrangements, pack up, and move on. But you know how human nature is, how easy it is to complain about the way other people behave if they don't do what we think they should be doing. So Peter gives a practical example of unconditional love. If you're going to practice it, practice it without complaining. The question here is how are we doing in our relationships and how are we doing in our prayer life? It's not just for the end times, it's for all the time. And the ordinary Christian life that practices prayer and earnest love toward one another, that's an extraordinary impact that life can make on one another, on the church, and on the world at large. And Peter says there's a third practice. Unselfish service. Practice unselfish service. Peter says, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Now, what's he talking about? Let's break this down for just a minute. Because what he's reflecting of the first century church and the way they practiced Service in the church is actually something the opposite the way we do it in the church today. See, the first century world, they were just learning how to be Christians and what it meant to be Christians. So we see this teaching repeated frequently in the Bible that when a person was saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they also received a gift of grace. We call it a spiritual gift. And that's actually the term translated gift in this passage. It speaks of a grace gift. Something you didn't have before you came to Christ. And when you came to Christ, he gave you this grace gift, a spiritual gift, to serve him in the body of Christ. And all Christians have one, at least one. Peter says it right here, let each one of you, each one of you has a spiritual gift. If you're saved by grace through faith, you were given by grace a gift from God that applies to service in the body of Christ. Peter says, when you use it, you use it to serve one another. Why would he say that? Because you're not using it to get attention. You're applying it and practicing it to serve the body of Christ, to serve other people. Unselfishly, you, you practice your spiritual gift. Now, what's unsettling and maybe really remarkable about what Peter's saying is that you pick up on this, it's the assumption of the early church that every single Christian is serving in the body of Christ. He doesn't have to tell them to serve, he tells them the attitude they should have while they're serving. It's just the opposite today. In 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 the churches today, a minority of people are actually serving Christ in the church and in the world. The majority of Christians, rather than seeing that they are saved to serve, which is what the Bible teaches, when you got saved, you got saved to serve Christ. You said, I will follow Christ, I will serve Christ. That's what it means to be saved. But most Christians today, rather than seeing it that way, they see being saved, being saved to sit. Let everybody else do the stuff. Now here's the problem with that. Not only is it a sin not to serve Christ it's a sin not to practice that spiritual gift he gave it to you for the body of Christ the apostle Paul teaches this in fact you can't use it but in the body of Christ that's what Paul teaches you have a spiritual gift that's designed for that you say well pastor Bob I don't know what it is well find out we'll help with that everybody be at Kevin's office tomorrow morning And just in case we wonder why this matters, Peter says, as good stewards of the very grace of God. There it is again. A variety of God's grace is given to us in a variety of spiritual gifts. Everyone has one. Why then does it matter? Whether it's the end of time or all the time, why does it matter that I'm exercising and applying my spiritual gift? Here's the image that Peter invokes. In the ancient world, People with great estates and bigger households, the opposite of those we were talking about traveling around, big estates, greater households, might even have two or three estates spread out across the empire. They all had a house manager. And in the Roman Empire, that house manager was called a steward. That house manager's job was to take care of the, the estate, the house, while the, the master, the owner, was away. And for however, how long he was away. So the steward, the manager of the household, acted in place of that owner of the estate while the owner was gone. He made decisions based on what the owner would want, not what he would want. He did what the owner liked and not what he liked. He, he, He sought goals that the owner had set down, not what he wanted. He planted the crops the owner owned. He worked the fields the owner owned. The master owns this estate, not the steward. The steward's job is to be the caretaker and the manager while the master is gone. The worst thing the steward could do is not be ready for the master to come home. And the master did not give some big announcement. He didn't get a three-day warning that suddenly the owner of the estate's going to show up and he and his wife are finished with their vacation they're coming back or, or he's coming from the other estate to this. He didn't get any kind of warning like that. He had to always be ready and therefore have the household ready for that master to come home. And he could never be relieved of his duties ever until the master came back and relieved him of his duties. And all that's packed into one word in Peter's text. But everybody in the ancient world gets it. Everybody gets it. Do you get it? Here it is. What are you going to be caught doing when the master comes back? Are you going to be caught red-handed in the service of Jesus Christ applying the gifts He's given you faithfully being unconditional loving one another deep in prayer, earnest after the things of God. Are you going to be caught serving Christ? Because He doesn't have to tell you when He's coming and you're not relieved of duty until He comes back. And yet so many of us think we were saved just to sit. How unprepared we will be When the master comes back. That's why the practice. Of unselfish service. It's an ordinary practice. Of the Christian life. That makes an extraordinary impact. On the world around us. And on each other. And last. Fourth practice. Uncompromising. Submission. Uncompromising. Submission. Having brought up spiritual gifts, Peter says, this should be your attitude when you exercise your gifts. Now in the New Testament, spiritual gifts are are pretty much cataloged under two categories. And after that, we have details of those gifts. But the two categories are the gifts of speaking and the gifts of service. Everything else falls under those. So if God has gifted you to speak for him, Peter says, make sure you are speaking God's truth. You are submissive to him, to his truth, to his words, so make sure that what you say on behalf of Christ is what Christ says. It's what's in the Bible. It's the word of God. In fact, the term he uses for speaking God's words is literally the oracles of God, which in the nomenclature of the Bible refers to the words God gives you to speak, the words God gives his people to speak. And those are in your Bible. That is, Peter said, if God gives you opportunity to speak or he has gifted you to speak as an ordinary practice of an extraordinary Christian life when you have opportunity to speak for Christ you speak what he says not how you feel, not what your opinion is not what your preference is you don't equivocate you say this is what the Bible says this is what Christ says pretty clear And then he says, those of you who are gifted in service or you're just practicing service in the church, he says you do that under the strength of God. You might get tired, you might get weary, you might wonder how long is it going to be till he comes back? How long do I have to do this? And that's when you call upon the strength of Almighty God to help you in your service. Because you're not speaking for yourself and you're not serving God yourself or your wants or your preferences, you're serving Christ. You're in submission to Him. And Peter says when we practice that uncompromising submission to Christ, from now till the day He returns, we give glory to Almighty God. People will see the extraordinary work of God in ordinary people who practice unwavering prayer and unconditional love, people who, uh, who are unselfish in their service to one another and to the world, and, and people who are uncompromising in their submission to Almighty God. When people see you and I behaving that way and practicing these basic practices of an ordinary Christian life, it makes an extraordinary impact. Not just at the end of time, but all the time. And it brings glory to Almighty God because people look at you and me and they say, you know, regular people, apart from Christ, they couldn't behave that way. They couldn't love that way. They wouldn't be without worry in this world and just trusting God in prayer. Regular people are afraid. Regular people are frantic. Regular people are panicked. Regular people are selfish. Regular people assert their will. But these Christians, look at them. The only way to explain it. Is God. God in Jesus Christ. So how are we doing, folks? How are we doing? Living that ordinary Christian life that makes an extraordinary impact. Is your faith making an impact because, not because you're trying to do great things, but you're simply following the Word of God. You're obedient to Christ. You're doing what He tells you to do in faith, believing Him. How are you doing? And if He showed up, if the Master came back to the household today, Would he catch you in the act of faithfulness to Christ? Faithful service to him day by day. Uh, You may have heard yesterday the actor Matthew Perry passed away. Uh, Right now they they think it was a tragic accident and, and Perry of course was in the cast of Friends. He was in a lot of movies but best known for playing Chandler Bing and Friends. Right now they're thinking it was a tragic accident at home. Uh, and, and if you if you know much about Matthew Perry, you know that from the time he was 14 till just three years ago, he battled addiction. And he wrote a, a, an autobiography about that. And from the autobiography, he was interviewed uh, several times about his addiction and about his struggles. Uh, in that book and in his interviews, he says that uh, he calls it the first time he ever prayed. Now, I don't know if he prayed more often than this, but he never professes to be a believer as far as I know. But he said the first time he ever prayed was when he was 14 years old. And he says, looking back on it, I know that it was a very immature prayer. It was, it was not the kind of prayer I should have been praying. But he said, this is what I prayed. He said it, it, was, it was pretty simple. He said, God, you can do anything you want to me as long as I get to be famous. Now, I don't use that illustration to diminish his life and certainly not to make fun of a very tragic life and a tragic situation, but it raises our eyebrows, doesn't it? Because in our heads we think, well, that's not how you should pray. No, it's not. Sadly, however, think about it. How many of us as Christians come to God and we say, God, bless what I want to do, and then I'll do what you want me to do? Or, God, I don't need you right now, but I'll let you know when I need you. Uncompromising submission says, God, I give my life to you. Glorify yourself through me, whatever you choose to do, wherever you call me, whatever you ask, whoever you want me to love, Wherever you want me to serve, God, that's what I'll do. Because I want God to get the glory. I don't care if I'm famous. I want Jesus' name to be heralded and glorified through my life. That's the ordinary Christian life that makes an extraordinary impact on the world. So how are we doing, folks? How are we doing? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, in this moment, God, we know. We know. Because we're we're people saved by grace. We know, God, that not all that we do pleases you. We know, God, that often our pride raises its ugly head in our lives. We know, God, that we're not always serving you as you've called us to do. We know that, God. So, God, for all of us here, Father our hearts would be soft toward you and we would ask your forgiveness God show us Father what we need to confess show us in our lives Father where we are not submissive to you where we are not yielding our will to you God show us that and I pray God that our our desire would be once again that Christ would be honored and glorified through our lives forgive us God where we have sought glory for ourselves forgive us God where we have sought to make a name for ourselves instead of letting Jesus make a name through us. God, forgive us for that. And Father, I pray each one of us here, Father, you would examine us here or at home and show us in our hearts, God, if we are practicing the ordinary Christian life that makes an extraordinary impact. And if you find fault in us, God, sins in us, if you have weaknesses, God, in us, show us that, Father. Forgive us for that. And may we be stronger, God, living for Christ day by day. Father, we know the end is always near. But, Father, may we we live not only for the end times, but for all times. May we live for Christ today. God, I pray for those in this room and at home. Believers who need to make fresh decisions for Christ. Believers who need to start over today. Believers who need to pray at the altar or on their knees at home, God and ask your forgiveness for our failures, our flaws, our selfishness, our greed, whatever you're showing us, Father. I pray, God, that you would show us that, that we would confess our sins, that we would stand up again, be filled with the Spirit to serve you faithfully. I pray, God, for believers who need to make fresh commitments to Christ today. I pray, God, for believers who are worried about the conditions of their household or their culture or their family, that we would bring that to you without worrying, without fretting or being panicked. We would bring that to you. I pray for all of us, God, that we would yield to you as you're calling us today. I pray for believers who need to make decisions to join fellowship with First Baptist Church or to be baptized or to take whatever next step of faith you're calling us to make. God, I pray we would do that today. And I pray, Father, for those in this room or at home who have never trusted Jesus as their Savior, that today would be the day, God, they yield their lives completely to Christ, trust Him and Him alone to save them, and answer the call to follow Christ today. So God, we give you this time and I just pray the Holy Spirit will be at work here in this room in our hearts, in our hearts at home, God. Whatever decision you're calling us to make, may we make that today and it's in Jesus' precious name we pray.